Our scripture reading today is from Habakkuk 1, 1 through 5. Let us stand for the reading of God's word. The prophet Habakkuk lived in a time of great chaos in the Middle East. Assyria and Babylon were great empires at war, and all the surrounding nations suffered, including the divided Jewish kingdoms of Israel and Judah. The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received, how long, Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make, why do you make me look at Injustice, why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. Seven centuries later, Paul in Romans uh, 10, 12 to 15, wrote the following word to the small but growing church in Rome. A people who lived at the heart of another empire that through war and violence had conquered almost half of the world. In these words, he reminds God's people and the church that they have a mission. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one who, of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This is the word of God, of, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I love these people. This is our family. This is the second, as Pastor said, the second of two weeks that we've stopped to take a look at the biggest refugee crisis since World War II. For many of us, this will be the biggest refugee event in our lifetime. I anchored this message in this passage for a really specific reason. You know today when, when uh, there's surveys done, what do you think of the church? Do you know what the number one answer now in every survey is? Judgmental. Not love, not compassion, it's judgmental. Every survey done now. And then it, there's this cascade of other terms, uh, trans, not transparent, hypocritical. I love this passage of Habakkuk because he is completely transparent. He's completely honest because he knows God can take it. 
the very first line out of this passage, right? How long, Lord, must I call for help and you don't listen? Doesn't that seem disrespectful? (laughs) He's talking to God. And yet these words are from this prophet have been handed down to us in this holy book because God's not afraid of the truth. Oh, how I long for the church, our church and ourselves and our witness to be known for the truth and honesty and the integrity of our witness so that when we are going through times that are so overwhelming, we aren't afraid to look to the heavens and say, how long, Lord, must I call for help? It seems like an appropriate text for what's going on in our world. As we just read to us, the, the Assyrian and the Babylonian Empire, they were, they were at war. The Assyrians were coming off the, the stage and the Babylonians were starting to take control. And in fact, we know any of us who've spent time in this book we call the Bible, we know that much of Israel themselves would be hauled away into exile in Babylonia in the days to come. This whole region was in tumult. There was great suffering everywhere. And for anyone who stood in their way, these conquering armies left nothing but rubble behind, destroyed cities. The prophecy of Habakkuk, if we continue to read through chapter 1, which is God's response, which we only read the beginning of, you will be amazed, he says. This, this, this response that comes, God says, you do not want to see what's coming. You think it's been bad so far. You know nothing yet. It reads like today's ISIS recruiting websites. That's how brutal the prophecy is. But our God is a redeemer. He is a redeemer. Amen? So what is his response in verse 5? He says, Habakkuk, look at the nations or the peoples and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days you would not believe even if you were told. Our God is a God in history through history because it's his story. And in that story, he is always on mission. He is always making his name known throughout the active partnership of his people, both from the foundational days of humanity until ours. 700 years ago, after this prophetic word from Habakkuk, Paul was in Athens. It's recorded that he said this in the marketplace of ideas. In Acts 17, 26 and 27, from one man God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. He marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. Boundaries change. There is no Assyrian, there is no Babylonian empire anymore. Boundaries change. They move so that peoples also might move, so that seekers of God might indeed find God. That's God's plan that he invites us into, to be his partners, to be his participants. In the back of your worship folder, and we have this wonderful ongoing series called Stories at Lake, people from our family. There's a wonderful story this week from Haitu, brother, friend, of how his own or family's refugee situation from Southeast Asia in the 70s brought his family here. In so doing, with all the trauma as a very young boy and all the trauma for the family, it's part of his story about how his boundary got moved and God sought him out. 
And today, high follows Jesus. The boundaries move. History proceeds. God remains on mission. The Bible has a lot to say about how God's people should respond to refugees and migrants. In fact, the Hebrew word ger, translated in our English Bibles variously as foreigner, sojourner, stranger, or immigrant, appears 92 times in the Old Testament. And it's almost always in one context. And it's a command by God to love and welcome those who are strangers in your land. Many of the heroes of our own Christian faith, David, Elijah, Jesus, just to name a few, all had periods of time in their life where they were refugees, fleeing persecution from tyrannical governments. The New Testament parallel is the oft-repeated command to, quote, practice hospitality, which literally means love the stranger in your midst. That's what hospitality is. It's loving strangers. Welcoming refugees is a tangible way we practice what Jesus summarized in the Gospels as the whole law of Moses, right? What did he say? Basically, love God, love others. And if I had been there, I confess I would have added something. Love God, love others, any questions? It's simple, it's direct, it's straightforward. Welcoming refugees also presents an opportunity to stand with our brothers and sisters in Christ who have been persecuted for their faith like the Algarians who you just heard from. Since 2000, 40% of the refugees who've come to the United States, 40% are our brothers and sisters in faith. As the Middle East has been emptied of believers through persecution and violence and through flight, many of them have come to the West and many coming here to call this home. So I was thinking about this message. I thought maybe it'd be helpful to structure it through the eyes of a refugee. Because there are three questions that face every refugee and every refugee family, and maybe it will help us as we walk through this passage today. And these questions are this. How much longer should we hold out and stay? Number two, after moving, after leaving, how did we get to the place we're in now? And then number three, where do we go from here? It was November 2014. I was having an otherwise innocent, what I thought, meeting in my office with a couple of colleagues, one of them here today, Dina out in the hallway, you can speak to her afterwards. And these two women, who I really thought were my friends, um, came and sat down in my office. And they said, Scott, Are you looking and seeing what is going on in our world? I said, of course, I'm your missions pastor. It's my job. I spend more time with the BBC than most English people I know. My day begins by surfing the Economist webpage for updates on news. Of course I know what's going on in the world. I look every day. And they said, no, no, no. Are you looking and seeing? Or are you merely looking? So you do understand that the biggest refugee outflow, primarily of Muslim peoples, primarily surrounded by just small little pockets of Christianity, these large groups of Muslim peoples are moving, and they're moving into places where the gospel can be openly told story from a place where it had to always be a closed, quiet story if it was heard. Are you seeing what's happening? Afghanistan. Pakistan, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, I'd watched it all. 
I paid attention, but I was looking and I was not seeing. So I looked again, trying to see, and I began to look and see. And I couldn't, like a refugee family, I couldn't stay where I was anymore. We as his church globally can't just look anymore. We as his God's church here at 393 North Lake, we can't just look anymore. We must see. And that brings me to the second question, because once you decide to move, after a period of time in your new surrounding, a refugee asks, how did I get here where I am now? It's a time for introspection and retrospection. Here's my confession as your missions pastor. This is my job, this is my calling, this is my role, to see what God is doing in the world. How can we join him in that? And I was looking and not seeing. And that's my task, that's my call. But I wasn't seeing. I asked myself, how does this happen? And I thought of a tool that many of us, we have a lot of therapists, counselors, pastors, missionaries, etc., who have a tool that we often use in counseling during a time of trauma. It's called the five steps or stages of grief. Probably almost all of us here are familiar with it. I began to think for myself, are there maybe five stages of Christian inaction? And these are the five stages I felt myself as I reflected that I had gone through, in it, beginning with inattention. Yeah, I know something goes on in the world, something went on somewhere, but I don't know what that was. And then maybe leading to apathy. I know, but that's just how things go. Or maybe we go deeper and now we reach guilt. Yeah, it's wrong what's, ha- what's happening. That's wrong. But I don't know. What, I mean, what, what, what could I do? But I feel bad. And then stuck in paralysis. This is too big a thing. It's too overwhelming. And what if I do an ineffective or wrong thing? So I'll just, you know, I, I don't know. I'll just be over here which can then lead to just resignation. This is the way it is. And maybe even holy resignation, which is, well, I'll pray about it, which we should, but we must not be stuck. You know the climax, for those of you who spend any time in the church or in a Sunday school, we all know the story of David, Bathsheba, Uriah. Nathan the prophet comes to David at the end of the story, right? He tells him this story about this horrible thing that's taken place, this crime that's been committed. He tells a great story, and what does David say? Let's punish that man. That was wrong. And what does Nathan say? You are that man. That was me. As I thought about my journey into looking and not seeing, the profound brokenness, and the profound missiological opportunity in front of us, I was that man. Retrospection can come after introspection. So I'm gonna quickly give us a little retrospection. How did what's going on in the world come to be? It began on December 17th, 2010, with a man named Muhammad Bouazizi. Muhammad was a poor Tunisian fruit seller. He had had no education. He couldn't make a way forward. He was raising a family that couldn't make a way forward. And he was so frustrated, like so many. He went to his provincial capital and he lit himself on fire to make a statement. 
He died shortly after. Slightly over two years later, rulers had been forced from power in Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, and Yemen. Civil uprisings had begun in Bahrain and Syria. Major protests in Algeria, Iraq, Jordan, Kuwait, Morocco, Sudan. Other minor protests in Mauritania, Oman, Saudi Arabia, Djibouti, Western Sahara, and Palestine. Friends, these are places in the world where uprisings don't happen for a reason. And within two years, one fruit seller lighting himself on fire set the whole of the Middle East and North Africa on fire. We came to know it in the West as the Arab Spring, and it was in full bloom within two years. But looking back today, I think if we were honest, we'd have to say politically, it's been more like a cruel winter. But in regards to the gospel, it has been the biggest springtime in the history of the gospel in the region. It has been a glorious spring for the gospel. For the better part of three years, most of the world just read newspapers and looked at our websites, and we were kind of immune, I think, frankly, to the level of, as I was, the level of destruction that, as the Syrian civil war reached this feverish peace, uh, this feverish pace, this ancient cultural homeland for Arabs, the place where Paul met Jesus, the place the first missionaries were sent out of, that is Antioch, Syria. And where this Arab Spring took this devastating turn as thousands began to die. And then thousands followed by hundreds and thousands, eventually followed by millions began to flee the region. But then it was in last fall and one September day that many of us around the world began to refocus because of one picture. Ilan Kurdi washing up on a beach in Greece. Friends, Whatever we may think about all the turmoil in the world, I'm gonna go out on a limb on this and say three-year-olds should never wash up on beaches. And it also breaks my heart that it takes something like that for many of us and many around the world to concentrate their energy and say, how is that happening? And what is my place? Well, we know the outflow, this map you're looking at now is almost a year old. These numbers are all about 20% higher today, and the friends I have in the region, people I've spoken with say all of these numbers are very soft numbers, but we are talking about a massive movement of people. There's an infographic out in the lobby which just has statistics currently from the war in Syria, and they're stunning, and I'm not gonna overwhelm you with statistics. It's not usually very helpful, but how about just this one? 400,000 refugee children in Turkey have not attended school for up to four years. It's a childhood being lost, a future being lost. Someone told me a long time ago, Scott, you know, it's really hard to strategize or make good decisions that aren't based on the facts. So much of this conversation about refugee in our country and around the world has been, frankly, a little fact-free. Do you know there's actually a legal definition for a refugee? They, ha- they must be located outside the United States. They must be of a special humanitarian concern to the United States. It they, must be, they must be able to demonstrate they were persecuted or fear persecution due to race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. And they must be legally admissible to the United States. 
This definition is not so different, though it's personalized to the U.S., from the U.N. definition of a refugee. Do you know that for the past 35 years, we've accepted up to 70,000 refugees seeking asylum in our nation every year? 70,000 annually. We're having a very odd conversation in a tough year because it's an election year. But friends, facts can be our friends, and especially basic facts. Last week, we saw this infographic about how complicated the process is for a refugee even to get to the United States. 18 months to three years on average, there's 11 steps it takes to go through. Believe me, if you want to come to the United States, this is not the way to do it. (laughs) There are lots of ways to get a visa to come to the United States. This is not the way you want to go. Last week, Dr. Odendahl painted a really big picture But that big picture, I appreciate it. He also acknowledged that this is just a hot-button topic. For better or for worse, it's a hot-button topic, and we must not run from that. We just must be courageous and look at it. And we must be fair and look from all sides. And if we look back at Habakkuk, he lived in a complicated time. And he said, God, what do we do? Where are you? I think we can say, God, what do we do? Speak to us. Last week, Dr. Odendog, in that big picture, challenged us to face some hard truths about our world and ourselves. He said this, preconceived notions are one of the barriers that will imprison our mind. They will prevent us from being fully transformed into the image of Christ. Wow, that's a hard truth. But by the transforming work of God in his word, in my life, in our lives, we know this is true, that we can move on from where we are. Paul wrote this in Romans 12, 1 to 2. Many of of us have this memorized. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you will be able to test and approve what is God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's a promise. Let's go after it. But we have to allow the Spirit to do its work. The the highly respected Pew Research firm did a poll in the fall of 2015 surveying Christians, self-identified Christians. They asked this question, Uh, What role has the Bible had on impacting or influencing your views regarding refugees? 10% said the Bible has had some some influence. 90% said zero. Friends, that's troubling. And it's really troubling for me as a teacher of the word. Because I think we must have been failing. I've got no other way to look at that. This is another you are that man moment. We hold our scripture to be the revealed word of God handed down through history to lead us, to show us who God is. I suspect the stronger influence for most is just fear. Fear of loss of of every kind, whether it's cultural influence, whether it's economic influence, whether it's physical injury, these are all types of security concerns, and they're all real, and they need to be considered. But they cannot stop our pursuit of God's mission in this world. 
Mark Morris, director of the IMB, the Southern Baptist Sending Board, said this, I read this recently, we should not assume that God gives us permission to prioritize safety and security over the advancement of God's mission and proclaiming his gospel. Friends, those of us who've been in the West for a long time, we have a very poor theology of suffering. But here's one of the beauties of Lake Avenue Church. We are filled with teachers because we come from many places. You heard three of those teachers open the word for us today. You want to understand how suffering economically, socially, physically fits into the practice of your faith? Ask some of your brothers and sisters to tell their stories. Because indeed, the gospel story is always filled full of suffering and sacrifice. My own peoples on my father's side were those peoples. But it's been 400 years since my Huguenot family fled France to come to the United States. I know nothing about a theology of suffering and living it out. I need them, my brothers and sisters. I need you to be my teachers. We need you to be our teachers. Friends, millions are on the move, and God's church must be on the move with them. His commission doesn't change. It's always go. And to go doesn't mean just to go over there. I read this quote from Pastor, I love this guy's name, Pastor Payne. Isn't that a great name for a pastor? Every week, he brings the pain. I read this quote from Pastor, that's what I would say if I was in his church. I read this quote from Pastor Payne, and it just hit home. There is something missionally malignant. If we're willing to fly over the ocean to try to figure out how to reach unreached people groups, and we're not willing to walk across the street to minister to them. We need this robust there and here theology and missiology, something we practice here at Lake Avenue Church. So whether it's across the sea or across the street, whether it's across your, from your cubicle or across the globe, we go. This is what we do as his people. We go. We represent, whether near or far, because we've been given this ministry of reconciliation. One of our senior pastor's favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 5.18, how often he quotes this to us. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and then gave us, gave us this ministry of reconciliation. So if that's the second question is, how did we get where we are today? And the introspection that comes with that, what do we need to be thinking about as we're sitting here? This is where we are today. So to try and understand that, I spent some time in, in uh, Germany and Europe in November and some time in the Middle East this past February. And I want to tell you two stories of what's going on while we are here because it's one of those things that we should be amazed about. So I was in Germany at a pretty, what we call a secure meeting, um, talking about how this gospel might advance among Muslim refugee people, that they might hear the full news of Jesus and be loved in the way that Jesus would have us love. I met a man there who was a former imam, and the imam leads a local mosque, but this imam was sent out as a missionary worker from Pakistan to Greece. I was in Germany when I met him. I said, a little uncomfortably, what are you doing at this highly secure meeting? <laughs> um, and he said, well, I began to follow Jesus a year ago. I said, tell me that story. Now, this isn't just 
Uh, Muhammad was his name, truly. Um, uh, this Muhammad's story is he wasn't just a missionary sent out. He was one of these one in 100,000 Muslims who's memorized the whole Quran. This one man was deeply committed to his faith. He said, but Scott, I looked at the world around me. I looked at my brothers and sisters all through the world who are killing each other. Because indeed, most of, the, most of the victims of the violence today in the world are Muslims creating violence upon their Muslim neighbors. He said, I saw this, and then I, I looked at the killing field that Syria had become, and I said, no more. This is either my God is false, my book is corrupt, or there is no God. And so for six months, he studied with a Sikh. For six months, he studied with a Hindu. And he said, neither of those led me to the truth. And I never considered Christianity because I've been told from a young boy a preconceived notion that the Bible is a false book and Jesus can't be the Son of God. So I never considered that. I went to bed one night and I prayed, God, you know I've been a serious seeker, but now I just feel like a fool because I don't think you exist. This is your last night. If you exist, I need to know. If you know anything about Muslims, you have, if you have friends who are Muslims, ask them about dreams and visions. They have them often, they put great weight in them. So that night this man has a dream and in the dream a man comes to him and he says, Muhammad, you have a question for me. And Muhammad says, I do. And he asks the question and the man says to him, I will not answer that question. <laughs> but I know a man who will. Muhammad wakes up the next morning, he remembers the dream he has and he remembers an address in the dream. So he goes, gets up, goes straight to this address. It's, it's like eight o'clock in the morning, he tells the story. Knocks on the door, man opens the door, he's got a cup of coffee in his hand, said, can I help you? He says, yes, I was sent here in a dream to ask you a question. <laughs> now that happens all the time at your house, right? <laughs> this man goes, okay, what's your question? He said, I wanna know if Jesus is the son of God. He goes, well, that's quite a question. I'm gonna need to make you a cup of coffee too, so come on in. So for months, they studied the Injil, the four Gospels together, because do you know Muslims honor the four Gospels? You can always read the four Gospels with a Muslim. So they read the four Gospels together, and Muhammad came to know that Jesus was the full revelation of God on earth. And he began to follow him. When I met him in Frankfurt, he was now leading four different groups of Muslim background believers as they learned how to follow Jesus. And he had started these four groups among Syrian refugees just in the last two months. And they were growing fast. And you know what happened then? They dispersed to the different countries who were adopting them. As I was walking across Berlin one day, I came across this scene. Some of you probably have been here. You know, this is the, uh, the Holocaust Memorial in the center of Berlin. All these granite blocks. And here's this green tree growing in the middle. And I'm thinking, Gardner's not paying attention. Because it's this very sober place, especially on a gray November day. But here's this evergreen growing in the midst of all this silence and depression and grayness. Because the evergreen is saying, basically, I won't be denied. I will bring life in the midst of death. When I see this picture, I think of that man, Muhammad. He is in the midst of many things as he tells his story as a Muslim leader who's come to love and follow Jesus to many of his Muslim brothers and sisters. He is bringing life in the midst of a very gray, traumatic environment. Second story, I was in the Middle East just two months ago. And uh, I sat 
uh, inside a uh, tent having tea with a man who'd been there four and a half years. And as this man told his story about he and his wife and his eight children, how they had fled Syria. They were from the city of Aleppo. If you've not looked recently at the amount of damage done to the city of Aleppo, just go on YouTube and type in Aleppo video. It will be stunning and it will be sobering. As I sat and listened to this man who described, I only have one square mile I can walk around in. And pretty soon my UN status expires. Right now I get $18 a month for each human in my tent, but in six months that won't happen anymore. I'm not allowed to work because indeed these refugees and friends, most of them are in the Middle East. The million we talk about in Europe is a drop in the bucket. It's barely 20%, maybe 20% of the refugee population. Lebanon, Turkey, Jordan, these places are being overwhelmed with refugees. He was living in Lebanon. We were right up on the Lebanon-Syrian border when I met him. They were moving, challenging stories, but right next to his tent was a bigger tent that was a school because good folks with the ministry in Lebanon said, you know what, we aren't going to let these kids go without education. So they raised, these good Lebanese brothers and sisters raised a little money and they built a tent school up there. So I met with the leader of this ministry who just happened to be there that day, just happened to be there that day in that theological sense that he just happened to, divine appointment. He said, tell me your story. Well, we first we talked about our families, and we shared some pictures. And he told me, well, we just came up here. Here was a camp. There's thousands of people. So we found a couple Syrian teachers who were refugees, invited them to have a job with a very little bit of pay. Would you teach kids? Oh, by the way, the curriculum we're going to use is based on what we call kingdom values. They will grow out of the Bible. Is that a problem? They said, no. So here are these kids. Now, occasionally, kids get pulled out by their parents because the kingdom values they think are just a little too kingdomy. But there's plenty of kids because they only have room for 40 kids. There are thousands of kids in this camp. I asked him, uh, he said something about he was going somewhere. I said, where are you going? He says, well, I'm going to Syria. I'm like, you're going where? Because Damascus is only 50 miles from where we're standing. He said, I'm going to Syria. Now understand, that very next day, I was headed down this mountain to the Beirut airport to fly back west. The Beirut airport sits right on the edge of the Mediterranean. You couldn't get farther away than any other point from the action than the Beirut airport. That's where I'm headed next day to fly back. He says I'm headed the other direction due east, 50 miles to Damascus. I go, how do you get to Damascus? He goes, yeah, it's a little complicated because there's three rebel checkpoints I have to pass through. And then I have to pass through three government checkpoints the closer I get to Damascus. I said, wow, that sounds complicated. He goes, yeah, it takes all day to go those 50 miles. He goes, but that's not the hard part. So what's the hard part? He said, oh, it's the no man's land between those checkpoints. That's the ISIS checkpoint. <clears throat> said this man, you just introduced me to your young daughters. How do you do this? Why do you do this? He says, Scott, there's a church in Damascus. They need our encouragement. I'm here, why wouldn't I go? Friends, at moments like that, I honestly do not know if I know anything about following Jesus. What is going on in the Middle East, a revival of the church, a whole birthing of a new movement, you would be amazed, utterly amazed, as you look at the nations. Half of the refugees from Syria belong to cultural subgroups with no known believers. What does that mean? Exactly what it says. During their entire lifetime, they would never meet 
a living, breathing witness to Jesus. And it's been that way for centuries and centuries and centuries. And we couldn't get, that, we couldn't get there really to tell much of that story not in a living, breathing witness sort of way. And I say we, I mean the church, big C. Today they're coming to us. Today they're coming to us. That's the story that's not told. There is a missiological moment here to take the gospel. And friends, when we talk about taking the gospel and seeing these new, new, new groups gathered, you know what's gonna happen with most of those groups? They don't want to go out. They want to go back. Very few of us wanna leave our home and never go back to our home and our history, and these are ancient homes and ancient histories. So imagine the gospel that someone finds in a refugee camp in Greece or in Turkey or in a capital city somewhere in Europe, and then peace comes back to Syria. They're gonna wanna go home. And what's gonna go home with them? That gospel. This is a different day. There are amazing things going on. Look at the nations, watch, and be utterly amazed. I'm going to do something that you would not believe even if you were told, God says to Habakkuk. Can you believe that God could do this? Do we have enough faith that God can do this? And then if so, would you want to miss this? Would you want to miss this? Would you want our church to miss this? So what am I asking? Well. These refugees, some of whom are among the least evangelized people in the world, they will not be reached in our spare time. They will not be reached with our spare prayer, and they will not be reached with our spare change. If we want to see a movement to Jesus among Muslim refugees, it will take more than spare everything. It will take spirit-filled imagination and spirit-led dedication. And so that brings us to where do we go from here, that third question. So here's some very practical steps. Number one, we can pray, and we should pray. Let's engage in prayer. This is a great website, thesyriancircle.com. Provides wonderful updates, just a focused prayer. Today at 12.30 after second service, come up to the Sky Room. We're gonna have a luncheon without a lunch. And we are gonna pray for a breakthrough of the gospel amongst Muslim peoples who are refugees. We're gonna pray for mercy and compassion to be poured out. Maybe you want to go. Maybe you want to join one of our, our impact, our LA short-term mission assignment teams. Two teams will be going to Europe this summer. They're already packed, but we will have other opportunities during the year. If you can give me the next slide, please. To go both to the Middle East and to Europe as we work with partners who are committed to seeing this long-term movement. But I think I'm more excited about this other crazy thing we're trying to do is we're trying to help Middle East ministers get to the refugee population because language and culture, it's their chance to share the gospel in a way they've never been able to share it in many cases in their homeland. So along with Dina, my ministry partner here, we're, we're working with, just four weeks ago, we began some training somewhere in the Middle East of workers, and we said, you've already been sharing your faith quietly. Would you be willing to go somewhere and share it boldly? Half of them said, yes. How do we do this? How do we get there? I don't know how to get visas. I don't know how we're gonna raise them. I don't know any of that. But I know God's doing an amazing thing and I don't want us to miss this. And then thirdly, maybe you wanna join a welcoming team. Practice this ancient Christian discipline of hospitality. Join a good neighbor team. Next slide, please. We provide all these opportunities to learn and get connected. It will be training, and I'm so glad. Last week, many of you signed up 
to be part of a resettlement team. We don't know when this, because of this election year, the tap has really been turned down on refugee immigration. We don't know when it's going to be open again and pick up, but we want to welcome you to be a part of this. In the lobby afterwards, you can sign up. In your worship folder, there's information. Paul knew how difficult this would be in his day. He wrote this to the church in Rome, a church persecuted already, a church learning how to be a church, but a church would not, that he would not let just settle to hole up. He said to them in Romans 10, 14 and 15, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This refugee crisis needs engagement now. These refugees need help now. These refugees need generous givers now. These refugees need messengers of hope now. These refugees need the church now. These refugees need our church now. These refugees need Jesus. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring and send good news. Church, it's time to move our feet. God, would you continue whatever you want to do with us to be your people, to be your obedient people, to be your obedient church? Father, indeed, so many of us in this room, our story is so entangled with suffering and complication. And in fact, for many of us, that's in, that's in fact how we did find you, how you found us, how we met you. God, would you give us courage, strength, whatever it is we need to be great welcomers, to be great senders and great goers, so that your name might be praised, that your name would become famous throughout the earth. And particularly, Father, for those who are coming to the, out of Syria, out of Afghanistan, out of Yemen, places, Lord, where your name has not been fully honored, would you bring a breakthrough for the sake of your gospel and your fame throughout this earth? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.